Welcome back to the Renal Lab Podcast, a show that explores the science and the people behind the Research and Innovation Network Austria, also known as RENA. This week, we are going to go deep inside the mind, or at least we will be looking into what our brains can tell us with Dr. Alexander Raschauer. Alexander is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia and has done research around the brain, behavior, and development, specifically around how we can use advanced imagery of the brain to better understand neurodevelopmental disorders. I'll let him tell you more about his work and what he's researching now. Today, we have a special guest, Alexander Roscher. Correct. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Cool. Right. Uh, we've been having a really good conversation and very, very interesting stuff on your field of expertise. Do you want to tell the audience what it is that you do? Um, so my, my training is in engineering physics uh, from the Technical University in Vienna. And during my master's degree, I became interested in, or for my master's thesis, I found that uh, medical imaging would be interesting. So I started to work in the field of magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, mm -hmm. uh, back in Vienna. And I started a, a master's project there, or like a, a summer project, actually, in the beginning. And then it became a master's. Um, and then it became a PhD thesis, even, uh, which I did partly in Vienna, but then I also moved to Germany. And then soon after finishing my PhD, I moved to Canada, to Vancouver, okay. uh, doing mainly brain imaging with uh, the MRI techniques that uh, I'm trying to develop. Yeah. I One of the things that I found fascinating is, and I'd love for you to explain this to the audience, um, how does MRI work? Um, so it's a, a strong magnet, many thousand times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. And when you put biological tissue, such as a human, inside that field, um, the, the mag that the body gets slightly magnetized. It's not so strong that the person would feel it, but the sensitive scanner technology is able to detect any change in that magnetization. And then the scanner manipulates that magnetization on purpose in a well-defined way. And the response of the body to this manipulation can then manipulation can then be translated into images, uh, structural images, but also functional images or images of composition of the body. So like certain chemicals in the brain can be measured and they can change with disease, for example, or we can measure brain activation via changes in the oxygen content of blood wow. that uh, happens when certain brain areas are active due to thinking, right? the neurons fire, mm -hmm. they need oxygen, uh, the, the oxygen is supplied by the blood, there's a bit of an overcompensation of that uh, oxygen consumption. Yeah. And that leads to a change in the MRI signal and can be detected and then mapped. And then we get maps of brain activation, for example. Or we can get maps of how the brain is wired. We can measure the diffusion of water. And it diffuses more easily along the nerve fibers. And that can be then translated in these, many people will have probably seen them, these beautiful maps of, uh, colorful maps of fibers in the brain that connect different areas of the brain. Right, right. So it's literally uh, using your own, water within your body right. to magnetize it. And yeah. so um, how does that compare? And I think you mentioned this a little earlier, but how does that compare to like X-ray and some of the other things uh, that are used to look within the body? Yeah, so the nice thing is that the radiation is harmless. So it's the radiation that comes off out of our cell phones or goes into our cell phones or radios. Mm -hmm. So it's the same kind of frequency. 
which is a frequency range that doesn't deposit much energy. It's minimal, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't do any ionizing uh, stuff with the with the tissue, like X-ray right. or CT scanners and so on. Which is nice because we can scan people again and again. Like if we want to follow someone over a month every day, we could scan that person, see what happens in their in their body nice. over months. And a lot of very in- interesting research has been done in the progression of certain diseases in the brain, for example, multiple sclerosis. MRI has taught us a lot how the disease uh, evolves, and there are these bursts of tissue damage that come and go, but over time accumulate and such things. And that's only possible because we're able to put these people into the MRI scanner again and again without harming them because the radiation is harmless. Nice. Whereas an X-ray has got short pulses and you don't definitely want to do that very often. Right, yeah. So there's a certain dose that people can get and uh, then they should be avoided to get more scans. So um, the kind of work that you're doing now uh, with MRIs, um, you were talking about how MRIs, as they come out, they have a certain function, but you're able to work with the engineering to change and develop apps for it? Or? Right. Yeah, they're, they're basically like a smartphone, so you get the hardware from the manufacturer. It comes with apps, with scans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a research institution, we have we have access to the kind of programming environment of the scanner, so we can do things with the machine that you normally can't do. And we can try different ways of, of manipulating. It's just the software of the scanner. Uh, in a, some half-educated way, there's a lot of trial and error, and error, of course. But um, so after some, you know, months and years of research, one sometimes ends up with a useful scan and is able to map something that we haven't been able to map before. Mm-hmm. And if you're really successful, these scans then get picked up by the manufacturers and become a, a product on the machines and then run all over the world. So that's wow. kind of the, and that's that has real impact, right? And that's the kind of the thing we want to see happening. That it what we create runs on. 5,000 MRI scanners yeah. or something, or 10,000 MRI scanners and benefits everyone. One of the things that I found fascinating in our discussion uh, a little while ago is uh, that the brain can talk even when a human can't. And so explain how people with comas have been able to communicate with people with with uh, the outside world. Yeah, so that's uh, very exciting research that's been going on for, uh, I think, 10 years or so. This guy's name is Adrian Owen. He was in Oxford, I believe, but he's also now in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so they have put people in the coma or a minimally conscious state mm-hmm. into the MRI scanner. So they did not respond to anything. They didn't, like, there was no no interaction, right? So there was no sign of that they would possibly could possibly hear anything or so. Uh, but there was a suspicion that some of these people might be able to hear what they are being asked, for example, but they can't respond. And then the idea was, okay, we need to find a way of getting a functional MRI signal that is very clear for the answer yes, for example, and another uh, way of getting the brain activated so that it creates a pattern that the MRI scanner then interprets as a no. So they taught these people to um, think of navigating through their house for the one answer, and for the other answer, uh, they were taught to say, think of imagining that they were playing tennis. And this leads to two very distinct uh, patterns of brain activation. And so when they ask the people something, right, uh, is your brother's name Bob? And the answer is yes. And they think of navigating through the house, I believe, in this case. Uh, that pattern would be easily, could be easily interpreted as such. Right? Okay, this looks like a yes. And then they were asked other things. And then 
you know, not a large number of people, but some of these patients uh, gave consistent answers. Right? They, they always gave the right answer. So this can't be a coincidence. Right? Ten times in a row, the, the correct answer to stuff that only they could know. Or um, and so they and then they worked with these people more, and some uh, a few of them were able to like be they were brought back to consciousness based on wow. that information that there was still some uh, consciousness left. Right. Wow. And that's uh, that's quite an exciting. Also creates a lot of very interesting ethical questions of course right mm -hmm. how you interact with these people yeah very interesting um i'd like to talk about some of the work that you've done on concussions and uh, some of that we were discussing uh, the how that science works within the mri right so that's uh basically kind of a byproduct of our efforts to create new mri scans that show things that we haven't been able to see before or to show things with greater in greater detail or better sensitivity and in concussion, which is also called a mild traumatic brain injury, um, there is kind of it's defined almost as as an injury that you can't see on a conventional uh, MRI scan or CT scan or anything. And so there's there's no obvious signs of injury. And our thought was, well, we had a scan that was very sensitive to uh, when the, if there was bleeding in the brain, and if there's tiny bleeds, normal scans can't see them. A CT scanner can't see them at all. Uh, and the thought was maybe there are some tiny bleeds in the brains, even in concussion, which would change the definition of a concussion, right? So obviously there is now some sign of injury if you can detect it. So we thought this was just under the detection threshold. And so then the idea was, okay, we, how do we do this? The ideal thing would be to compare a brain pre-injury and post-injury um, to see whether there's a difference. Um, but obviously can't hit people on the head, right? So we had to work with a group of people who have a very high risk of yeah, getting a brain yeah. injury. And in Canada, it's hockey players. Okay. In the US, it would be football players. They even have a higher risk. Mm -hmm. And so we just scanned for just, it's a big, big thing. Uh, we were able to scan 45 hockey players before in the hockey season. And then we waited for the injuries to happen. And then they were brought back into the MRI scanner three days after, two weeks after, and two months after. And we could look at the brain uh, as it got injured between um, like the, the baseline scan, the before injury scan, and the after injury scan, and also whether it recovered uh, over that time period of two weeks up to two months. Yeah. And this is using uh, the new technologies you guys are developing, right? Because before, it sounded like you, the way MRIs worked was just a very thin layer of the brain, and you could do that. Yeah. Correct. So we had that one scan. It's also a whole brain scan, but we, we managed to make it more sensitive than the previous versions. Mm -hmm. So that's the one for the for the bleeds in the brain. Mm -hmm. And there's another scan that was actually developed in Vancouver uh, that is able to measure myelin in the brain. And myelin is that insulating sheath that goes around the, the nerve fibers. Okay. If it's damaged, the signal along the nerve fibers travels slower, and that leads to neurological impairments. So it's a big thing in multiple sclerosis where people have the myelin sheath uh, destroyed right. due to the disease in, in certain areas in, in the brain. So it's like having bad wires in your computer. Right, yeah. So there's, the insulation needs to be maintained and needs to be hopefully repaired if it's damaged. And, and, the, and this, I had the suspicion that with this, uh, with this scan, until then it only existed, as you said, as a, as a one-slice scan. We've got a thin slice of five millimeters. And that was useful for multiple sclerosis because with a different scan you could look at where the injury is, and then with this quantitative scan, we could go in and put that scan, that, that thin slice there, and just look at the degree of injury, right? Which is a different thing. So if something is damaged, that's relatively easy. 
There's a lot of scans that can show that. But the degree of damage and the nature, nature of damage is, is a different thing. So that, that understanding that better, a lot of effort goes into quantitative imaging with MRI currently. And we managed to make this scan much faster that we could uh, scan the whole brain within a reasonable time. And that's very important in concussion because people get hit somehow, they fall somehow onto the ice in ice hockey. And each injury is different. We don't know where exactly the brain is, in, is injured. So we need to scan the whole brain, get a bit of an idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. So we tried that scan and some people said, you're not going to see anything. It's, it's a mild injury, right? It's just a concussion. How can you possibly see something? So we tried and we did see that when we average across these 11 concussed players, uh, that they did have an injury still after two weeks after their concussion. And that's important because these people already felt fine, so the brain is able to work around that area of damage. Yeah. And people have no symptoms anymore, and they can go back to playing hockey, they're, they, they're back to normal activity, but the brain is still injured. So by definition, as a concussion, there was no testing up to this point. And so as long as the person felt fine, it was a doctor release, go back to play. They could go back to play. Yeah. And the overlap, the risk of overlapping injuries, so when the brain hasn't healed yet, mm -hmm. is is pretty serious so then people can go into some uh, it's called post-concussive syndrome right? they won't recover for months and if it's a, a, um, a ice hockey player who's going to university right and it's like you know it impairs them and their grades become poorer right and it can have life-changing yeah. effects because right. yeah and the final exams they don't do as well as they wanted to or could have mm -hmm. so it's it's it can be serious right? even though they might recover within a few months or so yeah, so but this could put them into a completely different trajectory, like at university, for example. Right. So this this is super important work because now you're like, well, you can actually see that the brain is still damaged. So you have them delay going back to play and risk the second injury. Right. But only so at the current stage, only when we we know now that there's still injury when they already recovered, and that we on, we only know that from averaging across those ten or eleven ice hockey players. Mm -hmm. So when I put an indi individual into this scanner, I can still can't see, or I can still make a reliable, um, or one could still not make a reliable diagnosis that this brain is injured because the, the injury is still so minor, uh, or the sensitivity of the scan, uh, let's say, is not good enough to say something about one person. We had to average across those uh, 11 concussed hockey players. Wow. And we had to have the data before the injury. Yeah. So for professional athletes, that might work. Right? They, mm -hmm. Every fall, they get their scan. Yeah. And then when they have an injury, they go into the scanner and people can look, okay, yeah, there's something different, right? right. Um, but for regular people who might have some, you know, some, some mild brain injury, we can't do that. Right. But the knowledge is very important because it informs, so that we gained through that study, is very important because it informs doctors and they can say, yes, okay, you feel fine, but research has shown that you should add another week of, of taking a break and then you can go back. Because mm. we know that even though you feel fine, your brain is still injured and it takes another week or two or something wow. to heal. Wow, pretty incredible. I want to talk about uh, many of our listeners are um, perhaps even considering going into uh, similar work that you've done or considering various paths. Um, along your path, could you explain how, you know, you made choices to kind of get where you are? Yeah, my choices were not really driven by science. Okay. Like, well, the first choice was I was in Vienna and then I got this offer from Jena, which is in Germany, by a, a person who was involved in the invention of a new scan and I found it very exciting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I have to go there. This guy's, this is, it was, 
uh, it was a bit scary. I did not think I was, you know, this could, I thought this could become really difficult, right? Um, but in the end, I didn't. We, I think we did some good work uh, with that person. And then I got this offer from Vancouver, and I, it wasn't really on my map of what's going on in the world. So uh, I, don't think, I, mean, I know there was MRI. I knew that there was MRI research going on, but it wasn't in my field. But of course, I knew that um, there's good skiing. <laughs> and I already had, I already, I, mean, I forgot the most important thing. I yeah. already had a girlfriend from Canada. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so she lived in Europe for a long time. Yeah. And uh, so we were we were ready to go uh, to Canada. She did some degree in, in, in also in Germany. And so it was time for me uh, to go. And Vancouver is a nice place. So it's easy for, it's easy for both of us to, yeah. to move to Vancouver. But that was mainly because of the city being nice and uh, the surroundings being nice. There's outdoors stuff and skiing and so on. So that kind of was the driving force behind the decision and then things turned out to be working very well right and if, if, if it's a place that you like then it's it helps the brain to get up come up with good ideas and be creative yeah and if you go to work and it's frustrating right then no good ideas might happen mm -hmm. so i think that that was in that sense it's a good decision to yeah go to a place where it's that's in a way stimulating it doesn't have to be necessarily scientifically stimulating yeah but it helps of course as well i thought that was so interesting because at the end of the day it's uh follow your passion and, and, and be happy, right? And so at the, here you were looking at this uh, area and this is a beautiful place and I can be happy. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of your ideas actually don't happen on the, at the desk. They happen out and... Yeah, so one good idea happened at, at the pub and the pub, a few yeah. other ones happened uh, on like while backcountry skiing or hiking or so, right? When yeah. you have like an hour or two of, you know, walking up some mountain and thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can't think of, I think there was two or three ideas and the idea is a big thing. If it's a useful idea, yeah. and we have many ideas, yeah. of course, and many of them are not useful and that right. turns out pretty quickly, but some of the useful ideas, yeah, happened away from my desk. That's awesome. That's really awesome. I, um, would, I'm just fascinated. I didn't understand, uh, MRIs and, and the work that you're doing on top of what MRI does, uh, is, is just completely fascinating work. Um, well, thank you very much for being with us today. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, we'll be on next time. Thank you. The risks from concussions are not going anywhere anytime soon, but hopefully Alex and his team will be able to continue their research and find new ways to make it easier to treat. Thank you, Alexander, for telling us about your work and how, even in science, it is important to find a good work-life balance. The Reno Lab podcast includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Special thanks to Robin Tim Weiss and the amazing team at Research and Innovation Network Austria. If you have been enjoying the show, make sure to subscribe and maybe leave us a five-star review to help other science fans discover our podcast. We have one more fascinating conversation to share next week. Thanks for listening.